0: So before we dive into Article 18, <clears throat> we're going to hold it in tension with Revelation 12, starting at verse one, and I'm going to read through nine, and then I'm going to jump over to verse 13. Okay. I told you it was going to be weird. Okay. This is the word of the Lord from Revelation 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on those heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. The woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert desert, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, his angels with him. In verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torment, torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Being those who obey God's commandments, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Article 18, Revelation 12. That's what we're going to bring together this evening. Both which talk about a birth. And a birth of any and every child is a mixture of the ordinary and the extraordinary. Every birth is ordinary, and that births happen each day everywhere. A little over 350,000 babies were born just yesterday around the world. By the time we go to bed this evening, another 350,000 babies will be born around the world today. Tiny ones make their appearance all the time. Maybe not when Jim expects them to, perhaps. But it's every day, everywhere an ordinary occurrence, an everyday phenomenon. But each and every birth is also extraordinary. It's extraordinary because there now exists in the world a tiny person who didn't exist before, a unique combination of features and personalities, of likes and dislikes, of possibilities and dreams of a potential future that could go anywhere. Each tiny one is a creature wholly new, all to him or herself, breathing the air for the first time, opening and closing their eyes on a world that is wholly new to them. The birth of any and every child is a mixture of the ordinary and the extraordinary. Article 18, the Belgic Confession, brings out the ordinary and the extraordinary Of this particular birth that we celebrate and remember at this time of the year a birth so special that it gets its own name the incarnation which is just a fancy way of saying in the flesh right just we got to latinize it and make it sound good incarnation means in into carne from the latin meaning flesh into flesh the incarnation is purely the into flesh moment of god into body it's the moment when God, the Son, takes on flesh. The moment when the word eternal, with no beginning or end, has a beginning as a baby born into this world. With a body just like mine, a body just like yours. In Article 18, I don't know if you felt it as we read it through together, it, it holds in tension the ordinary and the extraordinary of this particular birth, of this incarnation, of this into flesh. And the Belgic points us to two extraordinary elements of this particular birth. <clears throat> God sent his one and only son into the world, and this particular son was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. Sets it apart a little bit. It's a little extraordinary in that sense. But if you've noticed as we read through it, Article 18 is overwhelmingly preoccupied with the ordinariness of this birth. Of the humanness of this incarnation. It goes out of its way to make clear without a doubt that Jesus, our Jesus, our Emmanuel, was born just like us. Like any and every birth to any and every mother around the world with a real human body, a real human soul, conceived in a real human womb to a real human mother all nine months of a real human pregnancy. A birth like any and every one, ordinary and extraordinary. I carried Article 18 with me this week as I thought about how to preach, what to preach, kind of what hummed, what, what sang about this particular article. <clears throat> so I was reading commentaries, I was exploring what others have taught and preached about on this particular part of the Belgic. <clears throat> and I brought this piece of the confession with me, actually brought the, our faith book into the doctor's office as I had my first ultrasound for my particular pregnancy right now. Which, I have to say, is probably not the most ex- the primary experience of preachers who come to Article 18. But that's where I carried it with me this week. I carried Article 18 into the doctor's office for my first ultrasound. And as the doctor turned the screen towards me, so that I could get my first look at this tiny one in my body, I, I saw this grainy, gray and white image of my child in my body, (laughs) with tiny hands and a tiny body, who was annoying the physician or the technician because she or he wouldn't stop moving. I was very proud of him or her. As I was in that moment, I thought of the confession's emphasis on the ordinary physical and inescapable bond of mother and child. Throughout Article 18, you feel the presence of Mary, born of a woman, fruit of the womb of Mary, conceived in the womb of Mary. Article 18 goes over and over and over with this presence of Mary, with the inescapable physical bond of mother and child. Because God, the Father and Creator, knit the body of his Son in the womb of Mary in the same way that God knits the body of every child in every womb of every mother. Fearfully, wonderfully. And the truth of this, the the beauty of this, it hit home for me in a way that it never had before. As I sat in that doctor's office looking at my child in my body, that inescapably ordinary, inescapably physical bond of child and mother. And if you look at the second half of Article 18, the whole second half of this article is in defense of this very simple truth that Jesus was born a real human being who took flesh and blood from his mother's body just like every child does. Because if you've noticed, it says, therefore we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother. This whole second half of Article 18 is driving home that connection between mother and child. Because there were those who were too scandalized by the thought that God would allow his divine nature to be so tainted as to take on human flesh from a woman. That they taught that instead, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, created Jesus just like God did Adam some holy new creation, new flesh, new blood, and then he just kind of, through the Holy Spirit, zapped it into Mary's womb. Jesus didn't need Mary's body, didn't need her flesh and blood, he just needed a human incubator for this tiny human God created without our flesh and without our blood. And the confession names this a heresy, it names it a false teaching. A false teaching that denies that God assumed human flesh from his mother, our flesh, our blood. A false teaching that denies that the ordinary physical bond of mother and child, of this mother and this child. And a false teaching that, for the majority of Article 18, shows that it defies Scripture. Because the second half of the article is all about using Scripture to defend That Jesus took flesh and blood from his mother. Christ shared the very flesh and blood of children. Jesus was the fruit of the line of David according to the flesh, descended from David according to the flesh, the fruit of the womb of Mary, born of a woman, seed of David, shoot of Jesse, descended from Judah, descended from Abraham, made just like his brothers and sisters, except without sin. And each descriptor is rooted in scripture. Each descriptor defying the false teaching, each descriptor defending the simple truth that Jesus was born of a woman, like every mother and child. The dependence of this child on his mother. The dependence of the word of life on the body of a woman for life. Article 18 leaves no doubt of the ordinariness of this birth. born of a woman, the seed of David, shoot of Jesse, just like his brothers and sisters, a real human being, a real human body, a real human soul. Ordinary, but also extraordinary. The beginning of Article 18 reminds us of God's promise. The promise of salvation first spoken by God in Genesis to Adam and Eve, which is described in Article 17 of the Belgic. Article 17, the one right before this one, ends with God comforting Adam, Eve, us, promising to give us a son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make us blessed. Article 18 begins with the fulfillment of that promise. We confess that God fulfilled the promise made to our early fathers and mothers by the mouth of the holy prophets when he sent the only and eternal Son of God into the world at the appointed time. Article 18, as we've seen, goes on to drive home the point that the son was born of a woman, just as God promised. Just as he promised in Genesis. And Article 18 goes on to defend that Jesus was born of a woman. But Revelation 12 is helpful here. Because it helps us see the other part of that promise mentioned in Genesis, mentioned in Article 17. The promise that this son born of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, would destroy the enemy, would throw down the dragon. Revelation 12 gives us a different picture of the nativity, of the incarnation. It's a nativity that includes some pieces that we typically don't include in our own nativity sets. Our sets don't typically include dragons unless perhaps you have a six-year-old, and then maybe it does. Our nativity sets don't usually have Mary in the middle of childbirth with a crown of 12 stars and the moon under her feet. It's not usually how we depict her. This picture, this image, this vision out of Revelation 12, it's a bit out of the ordinary. It's not quite our usual nativity scene with shepherds and wise men and angels in warm light, and a cute little family of three smack dab in the middle. Revelation 12 gives gives us a drastically different picture. Here, John receives a vision that retells the nativity story from a cosmic perspective. In this vision, we get a glimpse of the extraordinary behind the ordinary, the dragon behind the sheep, the universe behind the stable with two great signs appearing in the heavens. Not angels and stars, but a woman in labor and a dragon. The first sign is a pregnant woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she's a woman in labor, crying out in pain, a mother about to give birth to her child. And the second sign appears, and it's an enormous red dragon with seven heads, just to make it more grotesque, with each wearing a crown, and seven horns signifying strength, power. And instead of the image of Joseph waiting to catch the baby about to be born in the midst of hay and animals, in this vision of the nativity, The dragon crouches in front of the woman, ready to devour the child in one bite. This is a nativity that can cause nightmares. And the child born is a boy, a son, who we're told will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, the one who is promised. It's a powerful vision. And, and the rest of the vision is a blur of action and war, of chases and rescues, of somewhat indiscernible imagery that kind of terrifies and also gives hope. With the great red dragon, the ancient serpent called Satan being struck down but not fully defeated, just being hurled to the earth, and the woman fleeing to safety in the wilderness that was prepared for her by God. And then it ends with the rest of the son's brothers and sisters being those who keep God's commandments, who hold the story of Jesus, being pursued by this dragon, this serpent, this enemy, until its final defeat. Eugene Peterson writes that in this version of the nativity here in Revelation, that we're given this cosmic, extraordinary, uncomfortable, unfamiliar story so that the nativity, that the incarnation, cannot be sentimentalized into coziness. It can't be domesticated into drabness or commercialized into worldliness. That in this vision, the splendors of creation and the agonies of redemption combine in this event, this center where God in Christ invades existence with redeeming life, and decisively defeats evil. He goes on to write that our response to the nativity, to the incarnation, cannot be about shutting the door against a wintry, cold night, drinking hot chocolate and singing carols. This nativity asks something more of us than comfort. God promised our fathers and mothers through his holy prophets and his word that he would send his son, born of a woman, in the most ordinary of ways, with flesh and blood, so that in the most extraordinary of ways, this son would crush the head of the serpent, would hurl down the dragon, would defeat the enemy once and for all, for us, for all. The preacher in Hebrews reminds us why the Incarnation is so beautifully ordinary and extraordinary. The preacher in Hebrews writes, Since we have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in our humanity, in our flesh and blood, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful, a faithful priest in service to God. So that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. As Article 18 concludes, it's in this ordinary and extraordinary way that Christ is our Emmanuel, that Christ is our God with us. people of God, may you know the ordinary and the extraordinary ways in which God saves us. In which God rescues us. In which God pursues us. May you know and trust the power and the promise of the Son, born of a woman, who crushed the head of the dragon, our ancient enemy, who is now and forever our Emmanuel, our God with us.